Hey everybody, uh, this is Jonah Goldberg on another edition of The Remnant. And we're still, as I've tried to be saying for a long time now, we're still experimenting with the format and structure of this thing. Uh, one of the big pieces of feedback we got was, while a lot of people like the jocularity and the conversation about dogs and whatnot, that uh, some people don't, they just want to hear the conversation with the guest, and that's fine. Some of you are monsters, and I can't do anything about that. But so what we're going to do on this one, and we're still playing with this, so I don't make any promises that anything is permanent. What we're going to do in this one is we're just going to get right off the bat and uh, introduce Steve Hayes, who I just talked to. And then at the end, we're going to do some um, responses to uh, listener comments and comments from the iTunes page, which is another way of us inducing you to go to the page, make comments, give it a good rating, and all of the rest. And so in a second, we'll start with uh, Steve Hayes who's a known moperer and wanted in three states. And he's also the editor of the Weekly Standard and, uh, for some reason, a friend of mine. So that's about it. Now, and we're going to have a cool sound effect now, right, Jack? I'll work on it. Okay. Remember, well, I'm, I'm Jack Butler, by the way. I'm very obscure. I work for Jonah. And this is my first time doing the audio for this podcast. So you can blame all errors on me. Yes, as I always do. <laughs> yeah, I'm convenient in that sense. And my um, my wife now refers to both Jack and to Michael Pratt, who's normally in that chair, um, but is away this week, as my nerd boys, um, which is, I don't think, a label that you're going to live down anytime soon. Well, I'm, I'm an athlete. I run, but runners are very nerdy, so I'm not really sure I can do anything about the nerd label. Yeah. So one of my favorite uh, lines of dialogue from any book ever was by Ring Lardner, who said... Uh, Shut up, he explained. So, let's get Steve, and we'll get going. Greetings, dear listeners. This is another episode of the Remnant Podcast. Our first episode had Ben Sass. Our second episode had Yuval Levin. Our third episode had Ben Sass. And to prove how standards are dropping precipitously, our fourth episode has Steve Hayes of the Weekly Standard. Welcome, Steve. Scraping the bottom. I mean, this is really <laughs> sad. It's only your fourth, and this is... But look, I'm happy to be here on the Ben Sass Show. It's yeah, great. No, that's great. You know, you, you are a famous bottom, so it's okay. Um, so I was talking to my wife, Fair Jessica, as you know her, and um, I was asking, so what the hell should I ask Steve about? And we started getting into this stuff about having maybe doing a new feature of questions... Uh, my wife wants me to ask, or and then it became questions my wife wants Steve to ask me, like what's it like to be mistaken so often for someone so <laughs> handsome and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, um, and Pod only. And how want, would you answer that? I, <laughs> it's it's very strange. You know, true story, um, never before reported. This I'm making news, uh, such as it is. I once got a call from the vice president of the United States to tell me, in part, to talk about a column I had legitimately written, but in part to um, tell me that. He was inspired to call me because he said, I did such a great job on Fox just now talking about the issues. And I hadn't been on Fox. I'd been in my underwear in my house. And it was Steve who'd been on there. And I could not, like, the first time he said, okay, it happens. People make this mistake. Mort Kondracki once talked to me for 15 minutes about my Cheney book. But, um, <laughs> Which was fantastic. It was. It was a great book. And, 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 and remarkably easy to write, all things considered. <laughs> um, <laughs> But you get this sometimes too, right? You get I do, yeah, I do, yeah. There have been we we had a. I know you and I compared notes at one point about a, a some time I spent in the Fox green room where 
somebody complimented me on some column that you had written. And yeah. This was a 10-minute conversation. And I couldn't – it was a column you'd written long ago, so yeah. I thought it was possible that maybe I had written something that had generated this feedback. As and unlikely it, as that may seem. And, yeah, <laughs> right. and, was, and, then, and then this person talked about Cosmo and a couch, and I was like, okay, that wasn't me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or if it was, we got to talk. <laughs> um, so uh, – all right, so one question, you know, we, we, can, we can talk about the struggles and all the rest in a bit, but um, so do you have a theory why Wisconsin, there are a couple states that bizarrely punch above their weight politically, Yeah, um, not necessarily in terms of elected officials, although sometimes, right? I mean, certainly right now, well, I, I guess Reince has time on his hands, but there was a moment there, the sort of Wisconsin mafia was doing really well in Washington, and then there's also like all of these sort of Wisconsin people like you that seem to be, you know, sort of making sure that we can never get an electric car or doing something behind the <laughs> scenes. Do you have a theory about why Wisconsin punches above its weight as much as That's it does? That's a good question. I mean, maybe a reaction decades later to progressivism and the rise of progressivism. You've got this sort of, well, had, have had this young, vibrant conservatism in Wisconsin. And it was interesting for a time. Of course, Paul Gigo is from Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Scott Walker, governor, was sort of a right. reform-minded, bold, conservative policy leader. Paul Ryan, of course, on the entitlement stuff. Ryan's on the political side. I mean, it really was, and to a certain extent remains, well, a place that punches above its weight. I mean, you know, one of the reasons, I think, is... Charlie Sykes, who was this talk radio host in Milwaukee or was for years and has now become a prominent Trump critic. And it's he he had such purchase in Wisconsin, not just in the Milwaukee area, but beyond. And people Milwaukee, could, yeah, Milwaukee and Wauwatosa. <laughs> people could, people felt like they were really missing something if they hadn't heard Charlie that morning. And. You know, you'd go somewhere, I'd go somewhere in D.C. and somebody would say, oh, I heard Charlie mention your column today. And mm -hmm. He really helped shape the conservatism of Wisconsin. And he's, you know, he's not doing it anymore no, uh, no. from there, yeah. uh, which is a, a loss for the state. But oh that would be my best guess. Yeah. So I have a, I have a more You probably meta. have a better theory. Well, I don't know if it's a better theory. I have a more meta theory. The whole upper Midwest is kind of weird in how sort of Minnesota, Wisconsin – even even North Dakota, in in sort of how clean by comparison its politics are, and I think some of that has to do with this the heavy scando influence, and you know there's this famous exchange which I'm butchering where Milton Friedman was in Sweden, and and some lefty intellectual was saying how America's recidivism rate was so terrible, and everybody was going back to jail, and. And Milton Freeman says, you know, that's actually not true. We actually have a much lower recidivism rate than you do in Sweden among Swedes. Um, and, you know, and Charles Murray always likes to say that you can make any bad idea work for a while with Swedes, right? And I think there's sort of this, there's a similar thing with sort of Scandinavians generally that they take their politics really seriously, but they obey the rules in this weird sort of tribal way. And so for conservatives to come out of there, they sort of they have to be good at the actual nuts and bolts of politics right. and making arguments in a way that you get – you rise atop in Louisiana, it means you know where the pictures of the small boy right. or the right. the hooker in the trunk or whatever are, right? I mean it's a different kind of political skill set. It's the Mario Cuomo skill set instead of like the 
Paul Wellstone skill set or something like that. I don't, yeah. I don't I, No, I think that's right. I mean, if you go back and now I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself by not remembering the, the, uh, his, his two competitors. But if you go back to Russ Feingold's uh, mm-hmm. first election to the U.S. Senate, it, it was this race that had gotten bloody between the two Democratic primary uh, opponents. One of them was a, a very wealthy guy new to politics. And the other, I think, was Jerry Kletchka, a Democratic congressman from Milwaukee. And, and Russ Feingold was sort of this political neophyte, relative political neophyte. He was like a professor, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And he was, and he had, he, he, the way that he ended up winning the race, these two guys bloodied each other throughout the entire race. Yeah. And Feingold came up, sort of came up the middle at the end by being really nice and really funny. Yeah. And, it just worked because people were sick of hearing these guys beat the crap out of yeah. each other and Feingold could come up and he had some famous ad that showed his his house and his garage door and he, he made a joke of the whole thing. But his main selling point was, hey, I'm sort of a nice guy. I'm like your neighbor. Right. And it really worked and I think works still works in Wisconsin. I mean, Scott Walker, when he ran in 2010 for his first term, his, his whole shtick was a brown bag lunch tour of the state. Anywhere else you'd go, that would be so cheesy. Yeah, and yeah. People would immediately be cynical as I was when right. I covered the rate. Come on, a brown bag lunch. This guy really, this this would-be governor really eats two ham sandwiches on white bread a day? Come on. And he did. Yeah. And, you know, he. I think he, he drove a Dodge Neon, if I recall correctly, and it had, you know, 160,000 miles on it or something. And no doubt he used that to great effect. But it also was who he was. Yeah. And I think that's there's a lot of that in Wisconsin. So you, you are absolutely free to say, Jonah, this is inappropriate. We could even edit it out. But since you're talking about politicians eating, um, <laughs> do you remember the story you told me about waiting to interview Chris Christie in New Hampshire and the meal that – It was here. It was in D.C. Oh, it was in D.C.? I do remember. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 Want to yeah. re- recount that? It was um, – yeah. It was, it was shortly before he had his surgery and – it was at, as I recall, the the hotel where the Occidental Grill is, which I'm not remembering. Hotel Washington? No, no it's, uh, it's right next to the White House. Gosh, this is what happens when you get old. Um, in any case, he was there and he, he had had an interview set up with Bob Costa, maybe then of National Review or, right. or of the Washington Post where he is now, and talked to Costa before me and then I went in afterwards and Christie had had breakfast with Costa and I went in. And sat down, and Christie had a second breakfast <laughs> with me, and <clears throat> I was just sort of blown away. And oh, the, the other story that you may be telling is when he had a milkshake for for breakfast. Is that no? I just remember you saying how you're watching him eat this giant breakfast with I didn't remember it was Costa, and thinking, oh, I thought this was going to be a breakfast interview, but I guess I'll just have coffee with him or something. And then you came and sat down and. He ordered sort of the Hobbit's second breakfast, right? Which I always thought was interesting. Now, some people might mistake this as us being critical. We're not fat shaming, not at all. I, I, I'm actually, I was really impressed. Yes, it, it threw me off a little bit. I couldn't remember my interview questions because I thought it was so admirable. So this That's will how I eat. This will probably annoy some people um, who uh, I don't. Well, I can think of all sorts of people who annoy. But I remember we were in New Hampshire for. <sighs> primary in either 2008 or 2012, I can't remember. And we fell into this weird group of people. It was Juan Williams and I think Jonathan Carl and A.B. Stoddard. That was when I first got to be friendly with A.B., yeah. who's one of our both of our favorite people. And um, and all you guys are much 
bigger, I mean, not to say bigger TV stars make it sound like the predicate is I'm a TV star and I'm not, but you guys were much bigger on TV than I was. And so I went around the table and I asked everybody, what's the best thing you got out of being <laughs> on TV, right? And just so my story, which I still think is friggin' awesome, was I had been in Penn Station, you know, and for, for people who don't know what New York City Penn Station in the summertime is like, it basically smells like uh, Jeremy Corbyn, by which I mean a mixture of uh, urine and sadness. And um, uh, and so – and it was terrible and it's just this it's sort of pressed humanity kind of thing and everybody hates everybody. And this guy, this this red cap, this, this steward guy, right, uh, who does luggage for people, recognized me from Fox and he was like, what are you doing waiting in line? And he escorted me and put me on the Acela five minutes before the crowd. Fancy. Which is just like that's like I still think the best perk I've gotten from being on TV <laughs> for all you people who think that like it's all like Caligula, you know, excitement. <laughs> and um and then Steve, why don't you say Steve I should well, I, I don't wanna I don't know if I, if I set it up, people will know where it's going. So we'll just Well it was I mean so first of all, your 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 first point is a very important one because people, you know, you give, you give as many more speeches than I do around the country, and people are amazed when you talk, either in the speeches or in conversation, you know, that you do things like drive yourself to work. Right. People right, are like, right. what? You don't have a driver? No, of course I don't have a driver. What do you mean? <laughs> Never. Every once in a while, you can get Fox or somebody to send you a car. Right. But no. You right. drive, Part of the thing about once you're on contract, you get their driver less. Right. right exactly. Because you know, they exactly. assume we're paying you. Make your own, shag your own ass. Right. Out. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, and this this still remains my the, the biggest sort of perk, although I never took advantage of it the way I, I should have. The um, it, and it was it's sort of a sideways uh, bonus for me. I was asked, Brett Baer, mm-hmm. fantastic golfer. He's three or four handicap. I mean, regularly shoots close to par. Had put up for auction a round of golf with Brett Baer at Congressional Country Club. And uh, someone had bid on this at the auction and was going to join Brett golfing. And Brett called me, I think maybe at, you know, six that morning and yeah. said, Hey, do you want to come along? Obviously, I wasn't his first choice. <laughs> but I went and. We had a great time, and this guy we were golfing with was a wonderful guy, just you know, small talk for the first couple holes, and was a you know, big Fox News viewer, big fan of Brett's, and I, you know, I was sort of just along. I wasn't quite a caddy, but kind of, because I'm not that great at golf, and I'm not as important as Brett. And at one point, but this guy was, you know, I think he was impressed to be sure, sure. with Fox people. And at one point he says... I said to him, so what is it that you do? We talked a lot about Fox for the first three holes. And he said, oh, I started this, you know, small chicken wing chain in the south. <laughs> and the clouds parted and the beam of light <laughs> shined down on Steve and harp music could be heard. <laughs> and uh, I, I think I actually physically smacked him <laughs> and said, you know, no way. You're kidding me. Get out. Which one? <laughs> And it was Wild Wing Cafe, which is by far my favorite wing place in the country. Right. I mean, so we, really, listeners should now know that Steve is um, something of an aficionado of, of buffalo wings, of the of the wing arts, shall we say. True. Yeah, yeah I have very p- particular tastes about wings. I eat them everywhere I possibly can. That's yeah. why I look like I look. But anyway, it turns out I was far more impressed and excited to meet this guy yeah, than yeah. he was to meet us. Yeah. And he invited me um, – well, he invited me down, so I went and visited him uh, at his uh, – he, he has this restaurant with his wife, the Crowleys from South Carolina, wonderful people. He uh, he invited me to go 
you know, have wings with him and their Hilton Head location. And uh, we, you know, I ate a thousand wings yeah. in one sitting. And the the best perk was that she eventually gave me their secret recipe for their blue cheese dressing, which is the best blue cheese dressing you can ever have. It's the best thing to dip a wing into that you, that anybody could even create. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I have this secret recipe. The thing that they promised me and still has not happened. Oh, I see. I thought they delivered on this. No, oh, okay. still has not happened was they invited me to be the sort of celebrity judge yeah. of their annual sauce contest because they have a new sauce contest. Yeah. People submit recipes. These judges taste them and whichever wins then goes on their menu for the following year. I'm still waiting for that yeah. invitation. Still, it's, it's it's better than the red cap story. I but. mean, anything involving wings is mm-hmm. pretty special. Nice. And, the, and the blue cheese, I mean, I'm not kidding. If you have a chance to get the blue cheese, so get it. If you, um, if you could choose between giving up cheese curds for the rest of your life <laughs> or buffalo wings, which would it be? Oh, that's so hard. I don't eat many cheese curds because I'm here, so it would be easier to give up. Yeah, but you would also – get good cheese curds. But you would also be renouncing your cheese head citizenship for the time, right? Yeah, I would feel bad about it. Listeners should know I, that- I look forward to going back to Wisconsin for the you – know, see my family, go to a Packer game, everything, but for the cheese curds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I've, I've heard stories from your brother about how your mom was waiting for you at the airport and you – Barreled right past her, bumped, knocked her down, <laughs> went straight to the sort of cheese curd concession stand. Um, uh, listeners should know that Steve, because there is a lot of comments on Twitter about Steve's, uh, you know, the importance of his hair. And I've discovered that the way he gets it to look the way he does is that when he's not on TV, he walks around with one of those giant cheese head hats. And there seems to be some sort of unctuous fluid in it that seeps in, but we won't need, you can't get into that. One day we'll do this as a video and then all will be revealed. I have too much. I have too much gray hair to to, to it, take care of my hair. It's weird, but it's it does do something on. It pops on TV in a weird way. Yeah. In a in a way that I think makes John Podhoritz, who's uh, uh, follically challenged, uh, <laughs> just just scream into a pillow with envy every night. <laughs> um, At the age of thirty two, I should not have this much gray hair. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, and <laughs> And you didn't when you were 32. <laughs> uh, so um, I guess we should talk about some politics stuff. I'm of the mind, you tell me if you disagree, that there are only two constituencies in America right now that are fully invested in the, uh, in the cult of Steve Bannon, and that's the Bannonites and the mainstream media. And it's because the mainstream media, the New York Times, they, all, they love doing this. They've been doing this for a million years where yeah. they build up some foil to fuel the narrative of Republicans in disarray, conservative crack-up, yada, yada, yada. Um, and sometimes it's accurate. Don't get me wrong. But, yeah. they, you know, it's, it's much the same way conservative media loves Democrats in disarray storylines, right? Right. Because it's all – so much journalism now is narrative-driven rather than event-driven, Certainly. right? And – but this idea that Bannon is this all-powerful force in, the, in, in conservative politics and that he is this creature to be feared – it certainly doesn't comport with his track record, right? I mean, every almost every candidate he backed um, failed miserably. The most famous one against Paul Ryan, but also there were, you know, there were a bunch of other. The the one in Mississippi, Daniel, Daniel right? Yeah. And it seems to me, he, in some ways, he's playing the classic game of the Washington rainmaker. Yeah. Which is, and the first rule of the Washington rainmaker is, when it rains, 
dance, right? You know, you want because you want to take credit for the rain, even right. though you had nothing to do with right. it, right? So he's taking credit for Roy Moore and 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 Cocker as this proof that, or Corker, I should say, right. that uh, I really should say, <laughs> and, uh, uh, um, but his actual track record of backing winners is just miserable. He um, did have this one guy. Yeah, but okay. So, but talk about <laughs> talk about. Uh, th- th- I got this. I got grief for this the other day on Twitter because I was talking about how he's so overrated. And I mean, oh yeah, well you did get Trump elected. Well, this is one of these places where I actually agree with Trump. No, he didn't. Yeah. You know, there was there was there's no evidence that I've seen that he was instrumental or dis- decisive for it. Right. And so people are like, doesn't he deserve some credit? I was like, sure. But so does freaking Corey Lewandowski. Am I supposed to right. worship his powers too? You know. Right. Right. I mean, Ivanka had something to do with it, you know, right. but at the end of the day, it was Trump that did it, and it was, and it was, it was really, by my lights, Hillary Clinton that did it, right? Yeah, in many respects. And, you know, I mean, Donald Trump's biggest mandate was to not be Hillary Clinton. Right. And he's done a great job. But I think there's him. an ideological component to what we've seen with Trump and Trumpism. And, and you know, if you, if you think of the Republican Party as sort of four distinct groups, and there's overlap and there's all sorts of – you've got the actual establishment. You've got Mitch McConnell and right. K Street Republicans, business-friendly Republicans. You've got movement conservatives, which I had long thought was the dominant group in the Republican Party, maybe not as dominant as I thought. Then you have these sort of America firsters who have some overlap with movement conservatives. I mean, it's the old paleocon. Right. And then you have the Trump cultists. And – I think there's huge overlap between the, those final two right. categories. Bannon is sort of the avatar of the America Firsters and saw Trump as this vehicle to spread this. I mean, I guess we could loosely call it an ideology, uh, a, a worldview, but mostly I think it's just anti stability. It's not even mm-hmm. anti establishment, which is, I think, the way that a lot of people look at it, and there's some of that, but it's much more anti stability. Right. He's trying to mess stuff up. Right. I mean, that's why Bannon calls himself a Leninist. Right. Exactly. Just wants the, you know, the worse, the better, tear it all down. Right. Let it burn. Right. Exactly. And to that extent, he has been influential. And I think he's been an important part of the sort of Trump, the core Trump constituency now because he brings that, the America firster crowd and continues to give Trump a cover with that group, I would say, in the, in the way that Jeff Sessions. Does. No, that, that's all fair. I mean, look, I mean, I, I guess I should have been clear. I agree that he is an important player in the messaging and positioning of Donald Trump, and he certainly has been. But this idea that he's going to be the new kingmaker in yeah. Republican grassroots politics, I think, is is bogus. In terms of his influence with Trump, I mean, you can see it in. I mean, I think it's now conventional wisdom. I remember you and I and a bunch of people were saying this at the time. In part because we were f- afraid of it, in part because we thought it was the smart thing to do, is that if Trump opened his inaugural with this big olive branch to Democrats and infrastructure, yeah. infrastructure, infrastructure, he could have broken the back of the Republican Party because half the Republican Party would have gone along with it. He was newly elected. He's the president. He's the head of the party. And he could have gotten a third of the Democrats to yeah. go along with something like that. It would have broken the Tea Party. It would have broken limited government conservatism. And it would have been a, from a purely political point of view, the really smart thing to do. And Bannon was talking as if they were going to right. do that, right? Yes, he was. And instead, I think Bannon, because the, it happens with every administration, they f- think they have more of a mandate than they really do. Bannon fed him that inaugural address, which is a little unfair to say it was better than the original German. But, you know, <laughs> it, it does kind of remind yeah. me of that episode of The Office where Dwight Schrute 
uh, where where uh, Dwight Schrute thinks he's uh, doesn't realize that he's reading a speech by Mussolini to the paper salesman conference, you know? <laughs> and you know all this blood of patriots and all that kind of stuff, and that thing completely alienated Democrats from the get go, yes. which was disastrous, yeah. right? I think Bannon deserves a lot of blame for that. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I'm not sure. I, I, you're right about the infrastructure question. There is some. I don't know that we were right about that. I don't know that it would have been enough to to bring Democrats on board. Some for, for I mean, I think it would have been a transactional moment yeah. if Trump had been able to get them on infrastructure. But I think we would see the long term opposition to Trump every bit as strong today. Had he done that then, I don't think there would be much of a Democratic Trump constituency in terms of elected officials. Yeah, in terms of Congress, probably not. Probably not because maybe not. there's so much – I mean the, the center of gravity in the Democratic Party is on the left. Yeah. There's so much that can be done with opposing Trump at every turn. I think they would have been happy to take the infrastructure stuff and move on quickly to oppose him on everything else that he did. But uh, look, I, I don't know. I, I, I could talk this the other way. You could say – so he comes out, he alienates Democrats, right, with the inaugural and a lot of his initial stuff and makes it almost impossible to get anything through Congress. And so because he can't get anything through Congress, the only stuff he can do is base-pleasing, you know, executive – many of which I support, I right. think are great, right? But if he had made the overture towards the Democrats in the beginning and got a win, right, if the New York Times, which – Contrary to what everybody thinks, he really cares about what the New York Times writes Correct. about him. Yes, he does. <laughs> yes, he does. If they praise what he did and, oh, infrastructure, this is great and all the rest, you could have had a feedback process where he would have been more inclined to work with Democrats again and again and again and be the New York liberal he had been for a very long time. Well, I, I, you, may be, you may end up being right about that. I mean, there's, there's a story. There's something that took place in, in the days leading up to the inaugural address, to inauguration itself, that I think cuts in the other way, that Democrats were determined to oppose him and sure. oppose Trump and, and oppose everything that he was doing. And that was, and, and most people don't remember this. I only remember it because I reported on it at the time. But there had been this um, moment where Republicans had, had scheduled seven confirmation hearings for the same Wednesday. Uh-huh. And it drove Democrats crazy. Rightly so. I mean, I yeah. think they had a reason to be upset about it. And they called Mitch McConnell and Republican leadership in the Senate and said, hey, come on, you guys got to – we physically can't be at all these hearings. Yeah. You've got to reschedule one of them. And Republicans in discussions with Chuck Schumer said, OK, fine, we'll reschedule Mike Pompeo. But the condition is we need you to pass Pompeo as part of Trump's national security cabinet by voice vote on Inauguration Day. So Inauguration <laughs> happens. Pompeo, it was going to be Pompeo, Mattis, and John Kelly, then mm-hmm. Homeland Security. We're going to pass by voice vote. Democrats were going to agree with him. But come the day before inauguration, Senate's in session, and Ron Wyden, Democrat from Oregon, hints that he's not going to be – he's not going to do this. Yeah. He wants more answers from Pompeo. And voice vote means it has to be unanimous. Voice vote means that – yeah, that right. – I mean I'm just nobody's – yeah, nobody's standing up to oppose this. They're right. Going to, they're not going to place a hold on him. They're not right. going to actually have the, the, the real headcount vote. And – Next day comes, inauguration happens, Trump gives a speech, then they go to this, you know, this crazy luncheon where after that speech, everybody pretends to be bipartisan and friendly with one another, but they're not at all. They really hate each other. And then the Senate comes back into session and Ron Wyden puts a hold on Mike Pompeo. They do not do this voice vote. And Tom Cotton storms down on the Senate floor and confronts Chuck Schumer. And there's like a video of him poking him in the chest saying, hey – 
what the hell? You yeah. told us that you were going to, to do this. And Schumer responds and says, I, I wasn't speaking for my conference. I was just saying that I wouldn't put a hold on him. <laughs> and I think it just shows the determination sure. of Democrats from the get-go to block everything that Trump was going to do or to try to make his life difficult. Here's a question for you, though. So we are where we are now. Yeah. Here we are in, in mid-October. Infrastructure is going to come up again at some point, whether or not... We're going to have another infrastructure week? Yeah. <laughs> it's like infrastructure week every third week that gets overshadowed by Trump tweets. If let's let's go back to your your initial claim that uh-huh. that he would get a good Some chunk portion, of Republicans, yeah. a good chunk of Republicans, yeah, yeah. right, and then a third of Democrats, and it would yeah. pass. If Trump does a trillion dollar infrastructure package now uh-huh. and makes an argument along the lines that he made in his interview with the Wall Street Journal, which was a straight Keynesian argument. Yeah. I mean, this is like you could take Trump's words and swap them out for the stuff that Barack Obama was saying. He said prime the pump. Prime the pump. Yeah, right. Yeah. He came up with that. Yeah, I know. I know. He invented yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Do Republicans go along as a party with this? It's a good question. I will laugh my ass off if, if Rand Paul does. <laughs> um, uh, I as long bet, as there's not, you know, more defense spending in it, he's probably... Yeah, that's right. It. Yeah. It's, I would bet a huge chunk of enough enough House Republicans to qualify for the Hastert rule yeah. would probably vote for it um, with lots of hemming and hawing and, and under the table promises to get stuff in their district, you know, yeah. to grease the wheels. It also depends how they structure it, right? If it's a pure just write a check from the Treasury thing or is it all this weird tax credit stuff that you keep right. here floating around, right? Right. Because they need some rhetorical cover. And in the Senate, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that philosophically Mitch McConnell is that terrified by infrastructure spending. Um, no, you're totally for it. Yeah. Well, remember, Elaine Chao, Secretary of Transportation, is the administration's That's point right. person on yeah, yeah, infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. So. She has a major ally in the Senate, yeah. and, you know, that that's no small thing. Yeah. I just think it will be if, – if we have that point, regardless of what happens with tax reform, if we have that point, particularly if tax reform goes down actually, where you have Republicans in effect voting for the kind of, you know, infrastructure-heavy stimulus package that – Barack Obama right. put forward in 2009. And we're called racist for opposing. Right. You know, right. And now when the big white racist guy does it, you know. They're going to be for it? Yeah. No. I mean, this is, it, it will be such a moment. I mean, we've had a bunch of moments where I, where I think, you know, people who, like you and me look at this and say, wow, this is not, this is not the Republican Party we thought yeah. we yeah. saw. This is not the conservative movement maybe that we thought. But, but if that happens on infrastructure, I think that'll then. Then I think we're sort of in a, in a totally different world. Yeah, no, I, I think that bre- that probably breaks the Republican Party. Yeah, because they're just the enormous number of people who said this is not why I got into this. Right? Yeah, and the question is then <coughs> what's like if it breaks the Republican Party to take this one step further? How many people are still on the conservative side? I mean, on the limited government side. If it breaks the Republican Party, my concern is you'll have like six people. Yeah, who have opposed it because. We've seen that Republicans just go along and go along and go along, and that'd be a, I don't know, it'd be an arresting moment. It would also be interesting to see, just to turn it to some of our colleagues, who in the um, universe of talk radio and some of our friends at Fox News 
would go along with it. Again, I think it will be interesting to see that and as interesting or more interesting to see who doesn't. Yes. No, like the seven people who don't. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, for listeners who don't know, I mean, Steve and I have been sort of partners in crime, marveling at the changes that have been unfolding around us for a while now. And um, it can be very depressing. I mean, one of the the single most depressing things, and I'm not going to name names or get anybody in trouble, but one of the single most depressing things is to see, I used to say it was to see how many people say one thing when the light on the camera goes on and another thing when the light on the camera goes on. What is more depressing to me now is that They've now drunk the Kool-Aid and they believe the things, you know, I used to be astounded that anyone would lie like that, right? And now I'm even more astounded how many people believe the lies that that they're telling. And it used to be like you could have an interesting conversation in the green room and then be appalled that somebody would say something on TV that they had just contradicted in the green room. And now I'm more appalled. And then then walk off the set and say, ugh. I can't believe I, I have to defend I, this guy. I don't, I don't want to offend this guy again. Yeah. And and now you just find there are a lot of people who actually who, who, who believe it. And that was and politicians. And I mean, it was a, that was a wide yeah. group. Yeah. No, I think that's, it, it, that's an interesting point. I hadn't quite thought of it the way that you just framed it. But yeah, people who, who are making these arguments now because they, they really do believe them or they have to tell themselves that they really believe this stuff now. Um, yeah, I, mean, I don't I, know which is which. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a weird you know you know vice paying tribute to virtue thing, right? Where right, right. They they have to look themselves in the mirror in the morning, so they've convinced themselves that the stuff they used to believe is no longer true. Yeah, and and it was just weird. A year ago, I was just shocked at how many people would lie, and now I'm even more shocked that they don't think they're lying anymore because they've changed their mind on all of this stuff. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Led by, I mean, if I can say, I mean, led by... You could throw anybody under the bus you want. No. <laughs> I, I'm pointing to Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, they've changed their views on, you know, things like trade or maybe immigration or taxes or, in some cases, Obamacare. I mean, it would be very interesting to see if Republicans go along with some Obamacare fix. Will the legacy of Donald Trump's first year, as my colleague John McCormick tweeted end up being saving, saving Obama. Obamacare. Yeah. It's entirely possible. And then the question will be, how many people will oppose that? Yeah. There was one poll, this is a while ago, and I don't remember the who, who did the, the poll, but I think you commented on it or wrote about it at the time where Republicans were first asked in general about single-payer health care. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. they rejected it roundly and were later told if, you know, if Donald Trump favored single-payer health care, how would you feel in a plurality? Yeah favored single-payer health care because they heard that Donald Trump, I mean, he's not bringing to this any sort of worldview or ideology or something that he's thought out. He would be for it because he would think it would be, it would get him a win. It would notch him a win. And to see, you know, Republican voters, conservative movement types, elected officials. Some of them were our friends or were. (laughs) I mean, it is, it is, it's. Well, so it's interesting. Um, I, this is, I think, been one of the dilemmas for, for for Trump supporters from the beginning, and why I find the the intellectual efforts to support Trump can't get over basically whataboutism, anti anti Trumpism, right. beating up on never Trumpers is like the stabbed in the back caucus that are the root of all of our problems, right. and and then the final one is investing in the 
genius and wisdom and gut instincts of, of, of Donald Trump. Because the problem is, if you look at, like, what was it, American Greatness, and what was the thing that Crines started, um, National Greatness, what was the thing called? Uh, American Affairs. American Affairs. That's That was Jack Butler. Um, he took out the ball gag to say that. Um, and uh, the problem is, and Crines, to his credit, acknowledged it, right, is that there is no theme, ideological theme to the pudding of Trump, right? Right. And so you all the only place to go is either develop an ideolo- ideological position independent of what Trump does, yeah. which will get you in trouble with the Trumpistas, or just simply say, I place my faith in the Bill Mitchell approach, which is that I place all of my faith in right. Donald Trump. Whatever he does is right. Whatever he does is genius. He can create a boulder too heavy for himself to lift. And that leaves a lot of people just sort of in the lurch. Right. And and it leaves some of our friends on the right just basically having to defend Trump because his enemies are bad people. Right. I mean, that's, that's where they go once, you know, I think <clears throat> a lot of people have dressed up their sort of pro-Trumpism, and I was included in, in that, the American greatness types. Ah, I'm not really for Trump. I, right. I'm, I'm for Trumpism. I'm for what he, you know, argues for. I, th- these are the people I put in this America first or category believe in sort of the ideology that Trump they thought sometimes Trump yes yeah. sometimes articulates before right. he reverses himself on DACA and all these other things and, and and they do that I think to make themselves feel better I mean some of them really believe it I don't want to you know sure 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 they're just wrong but I, they believe it yeah, yeah some of them although I'm skeptical of the people who didn't believe it 10 years ago who I knew and would have right. discussions with and now are um, you know hardcore America firsters all of a sudden but you know, for others, they they want an escape from Trump when he misbehaves. Right. So this is where they find refuge. Right. right? I mean, they go to the Trumpism right. and say, "Well, look, I'm never, I, I was never really that invested in him as a person. I was invest, I'm invested in this thing." And I mean, it's hard to it's hard to have a debate with yeah. those people because it keeps changing. The, now, the Trump cultists. It's not even worth having a debate with. Right. And I say that as somebody who's you know I, I I've gotten to the. You know, to the point where I think, you know, one of the real problems we have is everybody, you know, the, the tribalism thing times 100 where nobody talks right. with anybody they disagree with. There's not an actual – there's not an intellectually honest attempt to understand the positions of people who disagree with you. I did not expect that I would find myself in this position yeah. making those arguments 10 years ago even though I believed them 10 years ago. But the the Trump cultists are – they they can't ever admit that he's done anything right. wrong. And, you know, to use his example of the of the shooting someone on Fifth Avenue, these are the people who would say if Trump shot someone on Fifth Avenue, they would say, well, what did that person do to deserve it? Right. Well, right. they were asking for it, obviously. Right. Right. And why is the media getting the gun make wrong? You right. know, that's right. it would be just a, a huge. And when Barack project. Obama shot someone on the exactly. street, the New York Times didn't say anything about it. Right. Because exactly. I saw that on Infowars. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, so this is why we can't have nice things. Uh, <laughs> um, so let's change gears a little bit with the little time we have remaining. First of all, you're now the the editor of the Weekly Standard, taking over for our, our friend Bill, who's super popular among many of the people we've been talking about just now. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, how do you like it? Um, I mean, I, it, it is it – is, incredibly stimulating and it's it's fun to you know be in a position to to shape sort of the, the vision and the direction of of the magazine and and really and I'm not just saying this in case Bill's listening but to build on what sure. Bill and Fred Barnes and and uh-huh. Johnny Pod and yeah. Richard Starr had built for 21 years that that part of it is 
fantastic. I will say it's, you know, Bill, I've been there for 17 years. Bill made it look effortless. Yeah. It is not effortless. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's a lot of hard work. And, yeah. and the management stuff, which I've never done, I was, you know, I'm, I was like you. I'm yeah. sort of a free agent. I would, I would not come into the office for a week or yeah. sometimes weeks at a time. And I'd focus on my reporting and my writing and do my stuff. So it's been a pretty dramatic shift that way. And I think, you know, it's fair, fair to, I'm, I'm sure people who work with me would say, it's fair to say that Steve is still adjusting to that, <laughs> learning how to manage. All right. So I, I, have a, I have a bit of a long setup for this, this question. For years, I would watch Special Report. And whenever you would watch Special Report, you'd always be like, I want to hear more Krauthammer, right? Just give me, more, give me more cowbell. And by cowbell, I mean, you know, Krauthammer. And Steve and I are charter members of the Krauthammer fan club. We love Charles. We're friends with Charles. We really want him to get better soon. But I've told Charles this myself, so I'm not, like, speaking ill of him. When I started appearing on Special Report, you're, like, sitting there on the panel, and you're like, this mother blank, he's such, <laughs> he's filibustering, right? Because you just use up all the time, right? And so where your perspective on something shifts when you go into a new position, right? And so, like... In the, when the audience, all I want to do is hear more crowd hammer. When I'm on the panel, it's like, well, somebody shut this guy up, you know, because he's <laughs> all my time. So now that you are managing Matt Labash, <laughs> <laughs> um, has your perspective on Matt Labash's uh, s- lifestyle, approach to journalism, <laughs> approach to management in the suits changed at all? Do you find it a little less funny, a little less we're, charming? We're going we're gonna to assign him stories every day. <laughs> he's going go to go to covering the education beat. No, I mean, he's, you know, he, he, is, he is as good as... I mean, the stuff he turns out, even when he's just sort of riffing like he does in this Ask, yeah. Ask Matt column, I mean, it's – I'll never – I could spend a year trying to produce one of those columns. I'll ne- I would never be able to do it. Mm-hmm. No, I could do it – I could like take one of his old columns and try to plug in new lines and payoffs and, and I would never be able to do it. But, of course, I feel that way about virtually everybody who works at the magazine. I mean, yeah. I – these people, except these for last, these people can write. Yeah, except for Jonathan Last. Except for right? Jonathan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, there are a few others. No, no. I mean, I c- these are people who are real writers in a way that I'll never be. I mean, I'm sort of a reporter. I know how I can yeah, report, yeah. but I'm not. I'm not a writer. This like is your they Wisconsin are. false modesty. Bullshit. It's not false. It's yeah. totally true. Go read something I've written. <laughs> <laughs> Confirm it right away. No, it's his Antifa story, Labash's Antifa story. That was story great. Was, you know, was, that was great. was unbelievable. But on the Charles thing, if I c- could. Just, yeah. You know, I mean, we, th- you're exactly right. The, yeah. the way that you describe it is exactly the dynamic. And we give him, people should know that we give him grief about this. You know, yeah. when, when we've got somebody before the second segment, somebody will say, oh, you only have three and a half minutes, you know, keep your answers pithy. And everybody turns immediately in unison and looks at Charles. Right. You know, right, like right. Charles. But we had a – Charles also knows how there, – there's a game that, that he plays, particularly when he knows that I'm going to disagree with him or you're going to disagree right. with him or somebody is, where he holds the ball. Yeah. And we had this – We I remember it was during the 2012 Republican primaries. We had a big argument, Charles and I did, about – whether Newt Gingrich's, I think it was his arguments beating up the media were going to be effective or not. And I don't remember the particulars of the mm. argument, but I had, I was arguing sort of the pro-Gingrich position. Charles was arguing the pro-Romney position. And I made the mistake of leaving Charles like 
seven seconds. <laughs> and he, whatever stupid argument I had made, I mean, in one sentence, yeah. just totally disemboweled me. I mean, it was ugly and yeah, yeah. bloody and gross. So the next time we were on the panel, I had the ball. And yeah. it was the same topic. This was a couple of days later. Same topic. I was building on the argument. He'd already gone. Yeah. So I was making the argument. And it occurs to me as I'm speaking, as I'm making the case, I can't give him any time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started to talk <laughs> very, deliberately, very slowly. And I looked down at him and he knows exactly what I mean. He's looking back at me and shaking his head. And <laughs> so I, I finished, you know, I waited till Brett was, you know, practically like turning white because we had to get to commercial. Yeah, yeah. Said my last thing, went right to commercial. And I won't repeat exactly what Charles said uh-huh. when we went to break, but it was... Colorful. He, he, he recognized what I had done and was uh, thought it was funny. So my mom, who's a huge Crowdhammer fangirl, special report fangirl, um, I should say fan lady, the only time I would ever hear about my performances on Special Report was when I made Crowdhammer smile or crack up a little bit and, and <laughs> the camera would always cut to him, you know, and so like it became a thing where I would be like, yeah, no, I, I think, I don't know if it was Gingrich. I think Gingrich is a couple fries short of a Happy Meal and just trying to see if, like, that would make him <laughs> laugh, you know, that kind of thing. So. Well, people don't, I mean, I, I, don't, I think it comes across some, but one of Charles' many terrific qualities is that he is one of the very funniest people I've ever met. He's a very met. funny guy, yeah. And he's also so incredibly down to earth. I mean, if if I were half as smart as Charles Krauthammer, I would be such a pain in the ass. Yeah. I mean, you'd never hear the end of it. I would, yeah. you know, be obnoxious. And he's he is not that way on an interpersonal level at all. No, no, no. He's and he's also kind of unflappable. You know? Yes, very um, much. He also has this superpower. For those who don't know, I mean, one of the reasons why, like we at National Review, we used to, and I think we still do. We would take sort of transcripts of some, like called Crowdhammer's take of some yeah. response on something, and we put it up on the corner of our group blog, and we noticed that you didn't have to do almost any copy editing. And anybody who knows about this stuff knows that the spoken word and the written word are very different, you know, and uh, there are commas and dashes all over the place, and the syntax doesn't always work, and you have to start over, and there are ums and ahs. And Charles has none of that. Yeah. And part of it is because at least my theory of it, you know, Charles, people don't realize how disabled he really is. And he hasn't typed anything in 40 years. He dictates his columns right. and, in and it's in his head. And so he has developed the center of his brain. I mean, he's really, really smart. I mean, Charles Murray says he's in terms of pure IQ, probably one of the smartest people he's ever met. And Charles Murray is not exactly known for his false modesty about saying things like that. And, um, but he can craft sort of perfect, perfectly constructed, grammatically correct paragraphs. Yes. Speaking, which is something, yeah. that, which is basically in our line of work, a superpower. Yes. You know? It's um, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So last question, because I know you got to get out of here. There's just a huge pile of cheese on your desk. <laughs> I didn't plan on this becoming a regular question, but so far the answers have been pretty good. What is the weirdest thing about Washington that you didn't expect or that surprised you or that surprises people when you tell people about Washington. So I'll give you a second to think about it because I didn't the tell you. The weirdest thing about Washington. Yeah, I should have listened to the end of the previous podcast. So um, <clears throat> one was uh, – so Sass's was how many dudes walk around naked in the Senate gym, which I thought was an interesting answer. 
Um, Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> I won't have anything that rivals it. <laughs> Let's put a pin in that, you know. <laughs> and then um, and then Yuval Levin was, which I thought really kind of great um, and reassuring, is that he discovered that nobody knows what the hell is going on here in the sense that nobody's really running anything. Right. This idea that there are plans and schedules and rollouts that people are sticking to. It's it's a myth that everybody's yeah. invested in perpetuating both the critics and the fans and the, the people running Washington, allegedly, and the people who hate the swamp and want to take over Washington. Everyone wants to think that something is going according to a plan. Yeah. Nothing's going according to a plan. No one controls the media cycle. No one controls the media. It's just a friggin' free-for-all. And it's something I've believed for a long time, but it was kind of fun to hear it from you all. Yeah, I mean, that's, as you would expect, SAS gives you an answer that is both surprising and highly entertaining. Yeah. You've yeah. all gives you an answer that is profound and brilliant uh-huh. in, in its simplicity. <clears throat> and I'll give you an answer that's terrible. Okay. So we're all playing, playing the type here. I mean, I don't know that this is, that this may not even be directly responsive to your to your question, at least the way you phrase it, but uh-huh. but a common misperception about the way that Washington functions, and you hear this all the time, is that it's it's one sort of never-ending series of cocktail parties with fancy people. Yes, yeah. And look, you can do that if that's if that's how you decide that you want to live in Washington. You yeah. could go to an embassy party probably every single night, or yeah. you could be on the quote-unquote Georgetown cocktail circuit, right? Which is more um, of a calorama talk. Like Juliana Glover, I think of is. A friend of ours, someone we've right. known for a long time. <clears throat> she lives that world. I love Juliana, but I don't go to any of that stuff. Ever. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, and, and it, it, there, there is this misperception, I think. I mean, you know, people use it to, to smack right. you know, people like us. Oh, we're, they're, they're so out of touch. They go to the Georgetown cocktail circuit. Oh, like, I, it just doesn't happen. Um, you know, I don't know how many dinners or events or cocktail parties I go to in a year, but it's not more than 10. Yeah. And, you know, I'll go to an AEI dinner or, a, you know, a Fund for American Studies dinner. But I'm, we don't live on the Georgetown cocktail circuit. And really, most people that I know don't. Right. You know, I don't, I don't know what that says about anything, but that's how people think of Washington or they look at it like it's an episode of House of Cards. Or they, and it's just not how actual Washington really works. Yeah, no, it's funny. Um, I tweeted the other day. That there was, I don't know if you've noticed this about my Twitter feed, but I, I, I tweet about dogs sometimes. Just what? Sometimes. <laughs> and uh, I was at the, you know, the, the, the social Safeway, the Georgetown Safeway. Yeah. All right. So there's a Petco there, and they were having an adoption fair there. And I tweeted out, you know, great rescue dogs at the Georgetown, you know, outside the Georgetown Petco. Check it out. And these people on Twitter are coming at me. Ha! That's hilarious. It must be all poodles and and purebreds because yeah, yeah, yeah. mutts aren't allowed in Georgetown. And yeah. it's like yeah, Georgetown is kind of a tourist trap. There's some old money type stuff there, but it's not. It's 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 not the seventh arrondissement in Paris or something, you know. Right. And and but there's this perception of Washington as and and you're right. There are those people who live that way. I've been to one embassy party in 22 years. Hated it. Three or four. I yeah. Think. But you actually cover stuff, so you might want to meet people. Yeah, there, like foreign right? policy stuff yeah. occasionally and makes sense. And the only cocktail parties I basically go to are when a friend of mine has a book, right? And then you got to go yeah, to their yeah. book party kind yeah. of thing, right? Yeah. But other than that, you know, first of all, I don't go to a lot of the cocktail parties because I can't drink in the volume and manner to which I've grown accustomed without people judging me. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't judge you. <laughs> no, I know you don't judge I, me. I don't judge you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you... 
you want to do this away from prying eyes, you know. And also, anybody in remotely our age range has kids. Right. So the a free night to go out, either with yeah. old friends or with your wife, is an enormous luxury. Right. And to spend it to go, you know, I mean, no offense to Mark Halperin or something, but the idea that I would give up one of these to go have a conversation with Mark Halpern at a cocktail party for five minutes over a pig in a blanket is inconceivable to me. Right, exactly. No, I mean, this is, and, and you know, I have, I have like practical daily responsibilities. Yeah. We have four kids and yeah. I have, we basically on, particularly in, during the school year, we're just taxi drivers. I mean, we're driving from yeah, yeah. dance to soccer to hockey to all. Th- yeah. That's part of my job. The nights that I don't do special report, that's what I'm spending my time doing. Right. There, you know, I have a tux that I use once every couple of years, maybe. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. it just doesn't it doesn't happen it the fits way you that really well. I wanted to tell you that. <laughs> no, actually, <laughs> I, had to, I had to wear it for the fun for American Studies dinner a couple weeks ago. Which you're on the board of now. I'm on the board yeah. of now. It was a great dinner, wonderful organization, 50th anniversary. Everything about it was great at the Trump Hotel. Ex- at the Trump Hotel, <laughs> which, caused, which caused a lot of controversy or tried. And, and I I made the mistake. I, I don't. The other thing, I don't ever wear a suit or a sport coat or anything if I can avoid it. Yeah, so, Steve is always wearing jeans when he's on special report. I've just reported this. So, correct. Yeah. And this morning I did I did a fox hit. Yeah. And I immediately got down to my car. I took off my jacket and my tie and I put on something, a sweater or something. Your, your Packers jersey, more, which is what he's wearing right now. More, more comfortable. <laughs> and uh, now you've got me... <laughs> Messed up my thought on the Packers. Oh, Rogers. Packers. Aaron Rodgers. Um, no, I made the mistake when I went to this Fun for American Studies dinner of of just grabbing the tux off the off of my rack, you uh-huh. know, at home and throwing it in the car, coming down wearing jeans and a yeah, yeah, yeah. shirt and what have, and changing in my office. To my great horror, learning that I've like I'm like two or three waist sizes bigger <laughs> than I was then, and I had a speaking role, so I sort of waddled up to the front <laughs> of the thing, and I was worried that one of my buttons was gonna <laughs> knock <laughs> his eye out. <laughs> it was not good. Uh, speaking of wings, speaking of wings, <laughs> yeah. All right, well, thanks a bunch for coming in. Hopefully, we'll have you back. We're we're still screwing around with the f- format in here, but I think we're gonna get more people and you know one of the reasons why i wanted to have you on is that you're we're perfectly comfortable giving each other um i'm trying to keep this from getting too blue curse <laughs> too much so from exchanging volleys of fecal matter um, <laughs> and um great to have you and hope to have you back soon yeah anytime it's a pleasure ben, being on the ben sass show All right, so uh, Steve, I just walked Steve out of the building. He left a uh, retro mingent trail of cheese sauce um, all the way out through the front door. For those of you who don't know what retro mingent means, shame on you. I'm not going to explain it. And uh, hopefully we'll see one of those Webster's uh, most Googled word announcements shortly after this podcast. And uh, I thought it went fine. Uh, I'm. Um, it's always good to have Steve around here. I'm being... Being inc- incredibly transparent. Sorry, my phone just rang. See how transparent I'm being? <laughs> um, so transparent. So I transparent. See right through you. Um, uh, being transparent with the listeners. So, you know, we recorded the conversation with Steve first. Then we did that li- weird little intro thing uh, that you heard at the beginning of the show. And now we're doing this. 
And I know that we're supposed to have this sort of fiction that they have in talk radio where everything is supposed to see, be seamless, but I don't know what I'm doing quite yet. So I definitely don't. Yeah, and Jack never does. So uh, we're just playing it by ear. It reminds me of that great old story about how Winston Churchill was visiting FDR at the White House, and he was were working on a speech or something, and he was walking around smoking a cigar in his bathrobe, and he got so worked up that he didn't realize his robe had fallen to the floor. And FDR came into the room just then, and rather than duck behind some furniture, Churchill said, stood bolt upright and said, Mr. President, the Prime Minister of England has nothing to hide from the President of the United States. Um, so Churchill must have been doing that kind of thing a lot because the uh, there's a famous ghost story about Churchill in the White House seeing Lincoln's ghost, and he was also uh, post post bath smoking a cigar and in the nude, and that's when he saw Lincoln's ghost. And I think that was his thing. Um, well, I mean, although sense. Churchill actually wrote a fantastic short story about being visited by his father while he was painting in the den, and it, it's a very sort of melancholy thing because. He never really gets to tell his dad that he accomplished anything, even though he kind of saved Western civilization. So anyway, again, as I think I said in the front, one of the things that uh, we hear from people is that for the people who are really interested in dog stories or whatnot, although I don't have many for today, uh, and for the apocrypha and various and sundry, as we call it in the G-File, you'll wait to the end of this thing, and we're going to see what we can do. It also helps when you have a guest who people actually want to hear from. So maybe one day we'll get one. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> uh, thank you, Igor. And so, uh, Jack, you have some um, comments from listeners? I do. You know, on, on these talk shows and whatnot, it's become popular to read mean tweets. Yes. This is sort of the equivalent of that. So do you want to start with the worst one, the one one-star review on iTunes that I could find? Yes, let's start there. And, and note to the listeners, I truly have not heard any of these before. Okay. Uh, I'll leave these people nameless except for the last one, and you'll see why. Uh, this first review, so I'm going to read the mean tweet, and maybe this is, I promise I did not r- write this review, although... You could have. <laughs> <laughs> ah, we'll leave that to listeners to judge. Jonah is a serial loser. A worthless Republican who, if given his way, would have surrendered America to the liberals for generations. A condescending elite who is not worth one second of your time. Wonder how long it took you to write that review. <laughs> um, okay, so there you go. You have anything to say about that? Uh, no, I just I'm shocked that we don't get more of that crap. <laughs> well, we will now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, this is a four out of five star review. Uh, you had mostly five star reviews, uh, and you had me devote most of yesterday to filling the page with five-star reviews. So. Yeah, oh, and, and rubbing my feet. But anyway, <laughs> go on. Uh, enjoy, uh, four or five. Enjoyed, but it, enjoyed it, but something I suspect you're aware of, you need to work on the ahs and ums. Too many, and I start being distracted by them instead of content. Yes. So distracted by the content is a good thing. Okay. I think they meant distracted from the content. Oh, right? okay. Yeah. Um, there you go. Fair yeah. enough. It's a tick. I try to deal with it. It's a very hard thing for me to do but because it's basically just a placeholder while I think, and I will try to get better about it. But, you know, at some point it's going to be love me, love my us. <laughs> That's a, that was a 50s sitcom run by CBS, I believe. Anyway, uh, um, okay, here's the next <laughs> review. Uh-huh. Uh, stop using me. Jonah writes beautifully and thoughtfully. I love reading his work. However, besides the hemming and hawing when he speaks during his podcast, which can be edited out, he reverts to the millennials' use of me as the subject of his sentences, as in me and my. 
It makes this old grammarian cringe. Huh. So you've just been accused of being a millennial. Uh, I need an example of how I do that. Because uh, this, 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 sir, this base lie will not stand. Um, what, uh, the alms I know. The alms I'm guilty of. But how do I use me as in a, in a millennial way? Apparently, we millennials uh, do the, will, so I, me is supposed to be the uh, object form of the first person singular pronoun, and apparently sometimes we don't, we replace it with I, which is supposed to be the subject form, but until, I, without an example of it, it's, it's hard to really zero in on this criticism in a constructive way. I'm just unaware that I've ever done it, so... Uh, Must be your Manchurian, uh, your Manchurian self. In the once the card, you're shown the card, you, right? That's a that's a movie. It's a movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, I'm I'm a millennial. I know old movies. Uh, let's move on to the next uh, not five star review. Uh, this is a three star review. Once the um and uh was pointed out, it was as if I were getting shocked each time it was said. Please edit those words out. So really, that's directed toward me because I have that power. Yes, and I have the power to shock you, so <laughs> let's, let's, let's get the Yeah, you haven't oh. used it yet, so uh, please don't. Yeah, don't. Uh, let's just, I'll skip to the last review. Goldberg is okay. I'm in it for the advertisements. And the, <laughs> the, as I said, I was going to keep all these people nameless except for the last reviewer because this reviewer's name is John Podhoritz Fanboy, spelled, with, spelled B-O-I. Interesting. Okay. So, All right, so this does raise something. I was very disheartened. I did a Glop podcast, this other podcast that I do with uh, Padoritz and and Rob Long, and I asked listeners for useful ammo, jokes, bon mots, quips, witticisms, famous stories from old high school pals, because uh, I'm doing this commentary roast where I get roasted. Steve Hayes, who was just on, is going to be one of the roasters, as is Rob Long, John Podoritz, who's the MC and a roaster, and Brett Bear is going to do something, and I'm thinking, I'm missing, oh, and Rich Lowry. And so I need, all of them are going to completely unfairly attack me, and I need ammo. So if anybody's got suggestions about fruitful lines of attack um, on their base lies and calumnies, I would love to hear it. And, uh, you know, there's, as, as you know, Pod, he's kind of one of the easier targets. <laughs> um, but anything and everything would be appreciated. Uh, do we have any other action items, or can we get out of here? Uh, well, you have a millennial here, so if there's any questions you want to ask a millennial about, although I'm not really a representative one. I'm, no, you're not. So I don't, I don't think my answers would really mean anything, not that they do usually. There's really nothing else I think that we can end this podcast. Yeah, I think we're done. Uh Tune, sorry, now you guys are making me self-conscious about it. Tune in next week where we'll have someone talking about something and I'll be getting better about something. And uh, thanks for listening. Same bat time, same bat channel.